Hey everyone, welcome back. It's Luke here. Um, you're on the Moments podcast and we really appreciate you tuning back in. I'm with Tom and uh, Tom, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself in a second. Okay. Um, but our head of growth, uh, Steve, I think is a big fan because he shared your recent LinkedIn post that said, uh, is this the time in which management dies and leadership thrives or something uh-huh. to that extent? I love it. Yes. So maybe you can give us a bit of uh, a sense of you and uh, what fueled you to uh, write that quote on your LinkedIn. Yeah, perfect. Well, thanks for having me on this show. Um, so I'm Tom Goodwin. Uh, my title, which is extremely vague, is uh, EVP and Global Head of Insight and Futures uh, Publicist Group, uh, which I think is about 85,000 uh, people across a variety of different advertising agencies from Saatchi and Saatchi to Leo Burnett and stuff. Um, but I also do weird stuff on the side. So I kind of write books about how life is changing, how technology is changing, um, behavior and culture. Uh, and I do a little bit of keynote speaking and consulting here and there. But, but broadly speaking, the kind of focus of my role is how is the world changing? How is it not? What's the role of technology? How can companies um, rethink digital transformation, but also cultural transformation as well? Perfect. Okay. No, that's great. I... I, I... Um, it always fascinates me about how people lead to like digital transformation or the transactional stuff of like how technically do you move from here to here without yeah. considering like how do you bring people on the journey with you um, or how do you get those people leading the charge? I think that's the the slow realization. I think um, I think we've almost had kind of three phases in digital transformation. And the, the first was about the the kind of merchandising of it and the kind of facades of it. So digital transformation 10 years ago was having a nice website or having a good intranet site. I think slowly it turned more into something that was a bit more existential. So it was about digital plumbing and having the right tools and the right processes. And I think it's only just dawning on people now actually that, you know, what, what stops companies from changing is not that they don't have Outlook Calendar. It's that, you know, David upstairs doesn't use Outlook Calendar because he likes a, a paper calendar. And it's that sort of Genie doesn't really trust it. And that Fred wants to use Google and someone else wants to use Apple Calendar and someone else wants to use Superhuman Email. It's actually the sort of alignment of people and the, the sort of recommitment and rethinking their jobs and rethinking the spirit of the company and the purpose of the company. Um, like that's actually really what digital transformation is about. Yeah, we, so we did a, we've done quite a lot of podcasts at the moment as we're remote in the world of COVID-19. And a guy said to me, his words were something to the effect of Corona has highlighted a cultural problem, not a technical one, as everybody's yes. fired up Zoom and Slack and um, systems to support them operating remotely on the technical side, really quite easy. Yeah, um, but they're in crisis around communication, and I think before we know it, the transition to remote is going to be less concerning than how you drive performance and productivity, and how you keep people motivated and conscious of their physical and mental, emotional health. I think it's no, going to be a much harder one. Totally, totally, and I think um, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure why people are so focused on the technology. So that the, the, it's always been, you know, do you use Slack or do you use Zoom or do you have the video turned on or off or what time do people wake up? Like we, we somehow we've got concerned with the the specifications, and what it really is is it's, it's a sort of culture of trust, really, and it's a culture of belonging and it's a culture of. Um, ensuring that you have people that you believe in and knowing how to kind of measure what is a good day versus a bad day. And if you have all of those things in place, then actually everything becomes really simple, I think. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I would completely agree. I feel there's this void between manager scepticism of whether people are actually doing work and employee effort levels that are overcompensating almost and over-delivering and probably being more productive and working more hours. And then there's this massive void in the middle in which there's just this perception versus reality gap of what's actually yeah. happening. <clears throat> it's, it's really bizarre. I'm, uh, I'm in the very uh, sort of mid stages of writing a book, um, which I don't even know if I'll ever publish or not, but it's kind of based on the idea that we bring so much of the past into the modern life, even though it doesn't really belong. Um, so I think, you know, before Facebook and before we all had, um, mobile phones at work and before we had laptops connected to the internet, like if you were at your job in person, you were probably doing your job because there wasn't anything else to do. You know, I don't don't think there were sort of trust issues in, in the 1980s where people would be fearing that each other are kind of, you know, pretending to file rather than filing things away because that isn't any more fun. Yeah. Um, and somehow, I think a whole generation, I don't like talking about ages, but I think there, there is a sort of cohort of people that somehow have the muscle memory that if someone's in the office at nine, that means they're good. Uh, and if they leave at sort of six, I mean, it depends a lot on your industry, then that means they're good. Um, and they sort of forget the fact that they might have spent all day on Facebook or they might have just been clicking the like button on Instagram. Um, and somehow we've sort of assumed that you can only really do work in the office. And if you're in the office, you're definitely doing work. And if you're not in the office, you're definitely not doing work. I think, um, you know, I'm aware that your, your podcast listeners will have different jobs and different sort of, um, environments. And obviously if you work in a chicken factory or something, then, you know, it's quite hard to, to sort of kill chickens at home. Um, but if you work in a sort of industry based on intellect and knowledge and curiosity and wisdom, um, you're far more likely to get ideas or to learn being pretty much anywhere other than the office. Um, and not only, this sounds all sort of um, quantum physics, but not only does just sort of space starts to blend, but also time starts to blend. So you realize that if someone's reading the New York Times on a Sunday morning, like they're still being as useful to you as if they were uh, reading it on a, on a sort of Monday afternoon in the office. Yeah, completely, completely. Um, so to to get everybody that doesn't know you a sense of um, what you've what you've done um, and some of your experiences, it would be yeah. great. We talk we talk about moments. So Mo is kind of short form for moments, which is okay. how we think you process experiences when you're all at work. And our job yeah. is how do you create more of them and how do you capture them um, to make people feel better connected to um, those that they work with. Yeah. Um, can we go to your kind of top handful well, two or three moments of your career that probably best describe just how uh, interesting some of the stuff is that you've uh, that you've done okay so in terms of accomplishments or, or learning because uh, moments yeah. in which felt really significant that's how we okay. think about them yeah, so they, yeah. they felt like they were stand out enough that you'll remember them uh, until your last day yeah, I think the first one would be, uh, I'll do them in chronological order for tidiness. The first Perfect. one, um, I did a degree in, in both architecture and engineering at the same time, which meant that I could kind of do anything in the world. And when you graduate in, in 2000, 2001, the world was quite a happy place to graduate into. Um, so I spent lots of time doing interviews for management consultants, and investment banks, and I did quite well at some parts of it, but I completely failed to get anything close to a job offer. Um, so I was quite sort of lost and lonely. And then it, it sort of dawned on me slowly that advertising might be the way um, to, to sort of forge your head. Um, I only got through to one graduate training scheme and then got through to the very, very, very last round in it. 
Um, so I think there were 12 people being interviewed for TBWA and um, they chose eight people and I wasn't one of those eight people. Um, and that was a very significant moment because for quite a lot of my life, I'd sort of come up from like a small countryside village where, you know, I was quite good at school and at university, I was quite good. So I'd never really known not getting my way. I'd never mm. really failed a driving test. I'd never come close to failing an exam. Um, and I, you know, I spoke to the, the people that interviewed me and I got lots of feedback about how I'd come across and how I wasn't very collaborative and how there was maybe sort of a touch of arrogance about me and there was a kind of uh, reluctance to see other people's points of view. Um, so it was really good in that it, it, it made me realize I loved advertising. Um, it made me realize that I was absolutely devastated I didn't get the job. Uh, and it made me realize that I needed to sort of um, mature a bit and stop being kind of precocious and start being helpful. Um, so that was the first one. Um, the second one, probably, so in, instead of getting a job in advertising, I then got a job working for GlaxoSmithKline. So I was on their graduate training scheme. And quite early on, I, I did all right. And I ended up sort of managing a team of about 25 people. Um, and I was about 22 and the average age of people on this team was probably about 47. Uh, I realized like how incredibly weird people are, uh, and how <laughs> wonderful they are and how sort of, you know, how motivation was so different for different people. And, and, uh, I mean, I was totally out of my depth. I wasn't particularly good at it, but I was, I was keen to sort of try and, um, learn by being scared, but yeah, yeah. to, to try and, uh, you know, to try and explain to someone who's been doing a job for 30 years, you know, how they should do things is extremely hard to try and explain to someone for 30 years, you know, why you've got the job and they haven't is unbelievably hard. Um, so it was extremely difficult, but I learned a lot about motivation and, and the kind of uh, the eccentricities, I guess, to people and, and what sort of motivates them and what, 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 what sort of gets them to change behavior and who you can sort of boss around and who you have to nurture and so on. I had a really uh, similar experience. So I got yeah. to quite a senior job um, looking after a pretty large team by about 20, 23, I think, for FTSE yeah. 100. And you, you have this sudden realization, like I grew up in sales or commercial roles generally and it's salespeople generally are quite one-dimensional when it comes to motivation <laughs> um yeah. no offense to them because no, I, no, i've kind true. of been one my entire life but it is yeah. fairly um fairly simple in terms of motivation and then all of a sudden you go into managing teams across different departments and all of a sudden you're like wow the world is really different to what you imagined it and it was like that the, the probably the same for you is like people just want such different things from work than what I do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Don't want to disrupt your flow. That was just, no, 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 uh, you're not at all. No, it's weird. Cause um, you, you somehow sort of assume that maybe there are, and this is a horrible way to, to sort of mechanize people, but you assume maybe there are three different buttons that you can press somehow. So maybe you can stoke their dream button or you can press their fear of failure button or something, but you realize that people are, are so complex and, mm. and um, you know they change over time and there are there are things that they hide by overcompensation which means that you misunderstand who they are yeah um, so it's probably the second one uh, I mean maybe the third one uh, I mean there was I, I got fired a few times um, so when I came, I came to America because I was very keen on the sort of optimism of America uh, and I went through quite a tricky time because when you're here on a visa um, and you don't really have very many kind of legal protections in your, your job anyway. 
Um, but I kept on being recruited by people because they loved me. And then the people that would recruit me would then get um, asked to leave quite quickly afterwards. Um, <laughs> so you'd end up unprotected in quite a lot of these jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so after a while, I kind of, um, I, I, I sort of, it was mutual agreement that I leave a company and I'd set this up my own thing. Um, so I went back to the UK from New York and I, I set up my own consulting company. And I think I, I learned a lot from that. Actually. I learned how hard it is to do stuff by yourself, um, how personal everything feels if it's just you. Um, but so actually all of these things have been very hard experiences, but I, I, I kind of love difficult things. I think, uh, I think somehow we're, we're so used to life being comfortable that we think that anything that hurts must be bad. And actually anything that hurts is where you grow. Yeah, indeed. I think the, the way that we think about it is like moments of insight, which maybe felt like negative at the time. Um, and then moments of like absolute um, excitement and celebration and highlights. Um, cool. No, they're good. And hopefully that like they certainly give me loads of insight to you. Um, I'm going to jump what will feel like quite a big jump now to okay. um, the time where we are at the moment, um, which yeah. is probably sat in our homes or hopefully sat in our homes um, <laughs> during uh, the coronavirus. Um, yeah. And I wanted to talk to you about the role of brands. So, yeah. um, and what, and how, how brands should think about what their role is now, both on the outside of the organization for their customers, their partners, the suppliers, etc., yeah. um, And then on the inside of their organization for their people. Um, yeah. And the impacts that that could have on how people think about the brand, the loyalty to the brand and so on. Um, yeah. And how they treat them through this time. If you don't mind. I mean, the, the first thing I'd say, and this is an easy way to get out of every question, but um, I think sometimes we forget how much variety there is in the landscape of companies and brands. Um, so in my position at Publicist Group, I kind of oversee every brand on the planet in theory. I mean, mm. in practice, it doesn't work like that. But yeah. you know, if, you're, um, if you're a telecommunications company, um, this hasn't really changed that much. You know, like um, perhaps your, your plans to launch 5G seem a little bit um, weird when everyone's trying to set fire to the bloody masts. Um, but yeah. it's, not, it's not changing everything. If you work in energy, if you work um, in utilities, then this really isn't actually having a strong effect on how you should be presenting yourself to the world. You know, there are some companies, if you're a, a pizza company that's got an app to do contactless delivery, then actually this is quite a, you know, obviously you're not going to take any, any joy from it, but this isn't the worst time ever to be launching things like that. Um, I, so I, I kind of assume that you mean the brands that we most readily think of, which are ones that are in difficulty. So whether it's a sort of USR restaurant or whether it's a fashion chain or whether it's um, uh, a sort of retailer. Or... Well, b both actually. So the way that yeah. we think about organizations in the context of the worker, which is, I guess, yeah. our bias, but the, 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 the um, customer implications have quite significant downstream impacts on people um, yeah. is one of like service-based organizations like an airline or a quick okay. service restaurant or a hospitality chain or a hotel business, for example, okay. where people at work are predominantly service heavy, looking after customers um, yeah. versus like knowledge-based organizations or typically desk-based digital savvy yeah. companies um, is how we would think about them in like broad characteristic terms. Oh, okay. 
Okay, so it's, it's hard to give sort of succinct advice. I think uh, so dealing with this sort of outside um, branding to consumers, uh, now it's quite a good time to uh, to not assume that everything's going to be terrible, but to also think that this isn't a great time to be proactively telling people stuff that's new. So I think if you're a car company doing a brand campaign about how wonderfully made um, your German car is, then that, that isn't necessarily um, upsetting to the population to hear. So I think anything that's sort of generic and long-term is, is fine to carry on. Anything that's sort of tactical based on, you know, get out and see the the the, the new Toyota. Like, obviously, that's totally wrong and needs to be stopped. Uh-huh. Um, but So I think most companies should be doing things that are broad that they were doing anyway. And anything that they planned on doing proactively now, they should probably hold the money now and spend down big in, in the rest of the year. So I think, I think the rest of the year will actually be a time of a remarkable recovery where people that still have jobs and have been stuck inside for two months will suddenly have all this money they've saved up and they'll be more desperate than ever to go out and slam tequilas in bars and travel the world and stuff. Mm. Um, it's certainly a lot harder within these companies. Um, I am massively aware that there are almost two crises that are happening. There's the health crisis, which is extremely emotional, unbelievably unknown, massively traumatic and dramatic. And it means that even if the finances of the world hadn't changed, like you would suddenly feel very uncertain um, and you'd suddenly feel fearful. Um, and then there's also the economic crisis, which is kind of unprecedented in that there's not actually a kind of fault with the machinery of the economy. Um, there's just a kind of stop button that's being pressed on vast amounts of it. Um, and then that creates its own fear and uncertainty and the assumption that, you know, you're too old and well paid and you'll get fired or that you're too young and you've just joined the company. So you'll get fired or you're in the middle management. So you'll get fired. So I think, I think companies have a huge amount um, of pressure on them to not jump to conclusions, to not let rumors grow, to make people feel valued, but to not promise things that they can't necessarily deliver on. Um, I mean, as a hypothetical scenario, the, the best thing that could ever happen in the world right now is everyone just kind of you know, um, I think it was Men in Black where they'd have that thing that would sort of stunt. And press the button and it, yeah. and it disappears, yeah. Yeah, if everyone could just sort of like live in sort of stasis for two months, then actually in two months' time we could come back and everything would probably be fine. Um, and we could all immediately start flying to, you know, Cancun and start booking hotels and travel lodges. Um, so, so I think it's very hard at the moment because no one really knows. So they don't want to say that everything's going to be fine because it might not be. But in, in that vacuum of, of authority and messaging, everyone's um, rumor mills and everyone's fear is, is sort of spinning around. So I, I think it's an extremely hard time to, to get the message right. I think to uh, to say things like there will have to be changes and we're looking at them now and everyone will be taken care of i think is about as as good as you can you can hope for at the moment yeah it's the balance of uncertainty and expectation right is you don't want to be in a position where we where you create great expectations because there's so much uncertainty yeah i mean the other thing is um and i'm sure we'll talk about this a bit more properly later but uh, this is quite likely to catalyze changes that were already going to be made. Um, and part of that is that the finances of the companies um, are struggling so much, they kind of have to make these changes. And I think also this provides a good excuse for changes that would have been politically quite difficult before. Um, so if you're a, a sort of massively over leveraged startup that 
was not making any money whatsoever and burning through tons of cash. Um, if you'd sort of announced that you were pivoting and you know um, getting rid of 90% of your staff two months ago, then you'd have looked at like you'd have been looked at like a failure and mm. a CEO that really messed up. Um, and if you do that precise same thing in two weeks' time, you look like someone that responded quite intelligently to a changing business environment. So yeah, true, very true. Yeah. Um, and then on the topic of work, which you did allude to then, um, the, the, the grand question of what does the future look like, um, which I imagine you've had countless times in your career with um, your job title. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that I can, uh, and, and please don't take any offense of this, but the only <laughs> thing that I can think of is um, when I was a kid and I would sit on the sofa and Mystic Meg would be on the telly. And that's the only thing that I can get going through my head with um, uh, as, as I talk about the future. Um, but it would be great to get your, your views of um, what this is doing to work, what you think might speed up in the context yeah. of the catalyst that you talked about. That, that I do agree with you. Like We've been yeah. banging this drum for a little while now, and it feels like overnight it's happened, um, and it's now just about whether this is a sustainable transition or whether it's a temporary one. Um, but kind of a, a view of where you think it's going and what do you think is going to speed up and change as a consequence of this yeah. by the end of the no, year. I, I am wearing a, a sort of purple and black velvet <laughs> robe. Um, yeah, I'm going like to get someone to Photoshop that onto the yeah. promo on afterwards. <laughs> I've got like a, I've got like a digital crystal ball though. Like it's um it's a sort of reimagined two dimensional. Oh, ah yeah. Ball. It's an app on on the on the iPad. It's amazing. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> I think um you know what's weird. I mean I, I um I have this horrible reputation for being a contrarian, and I'm I'm really not. I'm just someone that is prepared to look at the evidence. Uh, myself mm -hmm. so for a very long time there have been incredible predictions about freelancers i mean for for a long time there was this horrible stat that by 2025 50 percent of workers in london would be freelancers um and the number of freelancers i'll get the numbers slightly wrong but it's gone from something like 14 percent to 17 percent over the last seven years or something like it's it's a trend but it's not exactly mm. um an uber trend and for all the people that we assume are freelancers are sort of wanky graphic designers or social media consultants, you know, quite a lot of them are cleaners or, or plumbers or something. Yeah. Um, so I think, um, I think we've misunderstood the degree to which many of these trends were already happening. So, you know, the, the ability to remote work was already there, but people didn't do it because, um, you know, their managers were Social micromanagers or because they quite liked leaving the house. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think, um, I, I'm worryingly optimistic about the health crisis. Like when I, when I look at the data, I don't necessarily think that we should be assuming that we will be um, unable to leave our houses for the next um, four or five months. I think it's quite likely um, that in two months' time, many people listening to this will be back in an office. Uh, they might be back in an office yeah. wearing a mask. They might be back in the office and, um, you know, David from accounts isn't there. But I think, um, I think we'll be surprised at how quickly we return. And I'll be quite disappointed with how quickly we return to what's the old normal. Um, and I think we will find that we don't settle down to an entirely different plane. Um, we will settle down to a more similar than we expect plane. And then many of these trends will accelerate quite a bit. So I, I would imagine in... 
six months time, you know, many people who felt uncomfortable about asking their boss if they can work from home on a Tuesday will now be working at home on a Tuesday. Uh, Many people that were uncomfortable saying, I want to turn my five day a week job into a four day week will now be starting to have those conversations. Um, if, if I'm really honest, and this isn't a very nice thing to talk about, I think there will be a lot of, um, in, in thought-based industries, there'll be many kind of 48 plus year olds that will be um, not retained by their agencies or their employers. So I think there'll be a whole generation of smaller consultancies, sort of advisory roles, um, sort of nomadic, um, coordinated sort of remote cluster teams. Um, So I think there'll be a whole tranche of companies like that that form as well. Why do you think, why do you think that? Um, uh, Because I think, um, I have to be careful with my words. Yeah, there there is, um, when, when times get, quite tough within many industries then there is a pressure to um, do um, cost cutting that looks like the cost cutting that you're supposed to do so I think it's quite Mm -hmm. easy for people to not use that much imagination and to find the salaries that are the biggest and find the kind of people there that um, perhaps they're more because of tenured service Um, and I think we massively 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 um, undervalue people who are older and wiser. Um, we we have a lot of uh, prejudice would be the wrong word, but we have a lot of laziness in our thinking that means that a fifty-seven-year-old doesn't understand social media, um, or yeah. that a you know fifty-eight-year-old wouldn't get in get as excited about the VR customer service training program that someone else is proposing. Um, so I, I think we we don't value wisdom and experience and um, knowledge anything like as much as we should do. Uh, and I think decisions like that are just politically more easy in a way. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, hopefully it's clear in my voice that I, I think that this is the wrong thing to do. I also think it's massively wrong to get rid of people in times like this because this is a wonderful time to really explode and to, to take advantage of the, the sort of new opportunities that happen in a slightly different economic climate as well. Yeah, indeed. And, and maybe... Um, with this thread is is one of so one of the one of the observations that i made when I, when deciding to start mo was like this power dynamic shift between consumer yeah. and retailer or b2c brand and, and consumer um and the fact that um when you looked at like experience management the so the, the grounds for differentiation or competition really moved from price and convenience when everything was about where you went to buy something to a world of um, experience as a point of difference, whether that was in the channels that you shop across or the way in which people decided to um, delight you. Um, yeah. That for me was at the point in which the power dynamic had shifted from retailer to consumer. Yeah. I felt like beforehand, with high, before the COVID um, challenges, there was a similar kind of inflection point coming at work in which yeah. the unemployment levels were uh, really low. The, uh, the likes of tech was creating a real salary bubble in the war for talent and how hard it was to get hold of people. So salaries were going up and the culture was used, used as a point of real difference in organizations in a very similar way that brands created this higher experience expectation to differentiate themselves. Yeah. Um, so that same kind of transition from employer to employee or workplace to worker in whatever form the contractual arrangement manifests itself. Like, do you, do, do you see that continuing to happen? 
Like, do you see that employees will feel like they've got a leg up in this power dynamic? Or do you think it's going to completely undermine it and shatter it when there's this dawning realization that the employer still holds quite a lot of the cards and can take away the kind of high levels of demand for people um, in the workplace? It's, um, it's an extremely good question. Um, and all of your thinking there, I think, is um, sort of quite um, unique in a way. I don't, I don't think many people have been going around expressing it, um, how concisely and articulately and sort of insightfully as you did. Um, but I, I completely agree that that has been a movement. Mm. Um, again, I, I'm aware that I don't quite know who listens to this podcast. And I, I hate it when you sort of assume that everyone's a bit like you in the world because yeah, there are obviously yeah. people who sort of work in, um, you know, Halfords and they're, they're not there because they've got a personal brand. You know, they're there because they're trying to get a job on a Saturday. And yeah. you know, there are other people that work in call centers and, and so on. But if we assume our sort of audience to be, um, you know, people that sort of lead talent or people that work in large consultancy companies or accountancies or, or sort of write code or something. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely think it was the case. I don't think many people were pointing out that the, the power had shifted to employees. And I think um, uh, there, there's also a slightly strange, I don't like talking about generations because I think it's largely a nonsensical construct, but it, it was definitely the case that a, a whole group of people for the last few years um, whether it's in performance reviews or whether it's part of a recruitment process, um, the, the tone of the, re- of the relationship in these meetings was always very much kind of, uh, you know, why should I come and work for you? And, you know, surely I can do yoga on a Thursday afternoon and it doesn't matter if I meet that, miss that meeting. Like it, it was always very much about them, yeah. which was quite exasperating, but also um, how life is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, publicists, I haven't talked that much about this publicly, so I'll try not to go into too much depth. But at publicists, I've been part of a kind of cultural transformation program where there is a realization that... Um, and again, your, your listeners will have different knowledge about advertising agencies, but, but we basically are a holding company. So we're a kind of service yeah. and financial construct, which kind of exists to sort of aggregate everyone together. And I think for a long time, the, the notion of big organizational constructs were there to sort of provide infrastructure, but also basically to sort of beat the drum and to try and um, suck as much stuff as you could out from each employer employee and we we realized um over the last two years that we needed to completely um subvert that and that our job was there to be a platform and our job was there to make to help people and our job was there was to make people feel proud to belong to something and it was it was much less about what what people can do for their companies and it was much much more about what companies can do for their people Uh, and, and i don't mean just the sort of silly trappings of the pool tables in the office and the free reiki sessions on a tuesday i mean like how do you really create a sense of um togetherness like how do you really make it clear that you are there almost like a kind of um a wonderful mum and dad just as you're going off to university you know how can you be the person that sort of buys them their first round of shopping at tesco you know make sure that the roof isn't going to collapse and then sort of says look you're on your own now but we're here if you need you the platform or springboard to succeed right rather than beating you over the head to cause you to fail yeah and i would i would really love to see a world where that becomes um the kind of current that passes through this moment and i i can really see how that would happen because i think 
when you trust people and when you manage them by outputs and outcomes and when you make it clear that your job as a kind of quote unquote manager is to give people freedom to exceed excel and you are there to sort of help them um, get rid of obstacles that may stop them from uh, succeeding when you create a coach like that amazing things happen and that's clearly what is the best way to manage or lead um, in a slightly more remote, slightly more blurred work-life balance kind of world that we have ahead. My fear is that if this recession ends up being quite bad and the employees become um, sort of have less kind of collective bargaining and that they feel more desperate to fit into companies rather than to have companies that fit around them, my, my slight fear would be that that movement may sort of take a few steps back. Yeah, or slow down um, yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe second to last question, um, yeah. which is, um, and I'm almost nervous talking to you about this because you have a far greater understanding than brand than I probably will ever do. <laughs> um, but the way in simplistic form, the way that I understand the expression of brand is through what you say, uh, what you look like and ultimately what you do. Yeah. And Broadcasting out to the world from a customer expectation it feels a lot simpler. Nice website, say all the right things, set a customer service standard in the way in which someone interacts with you in a call center or in a shop or whatever. Yeah. How I think about organizations is that you can have a nice careers website or your office can look really cool and you can have an internal comms team that says all of the right things and they believe that employees across the board are hearing what you're saying. But the the element of how they experience you in what you do is much yeah. more micro than organizations ever understand it to be in my mind, which is yeah. culture change is quite a top down macro, super diluted generalist approach to saying, this is what our experience standard should be like across an organization. Whereas yeah. my feeling is that your experience of a company is actually in the relationships, the interactions about how you go about getting your work done, you go to for advice and support and ultimately who you have some form of social interaction with so it's much much more micro than companies often understand it to be yes um which is requires a completely different mindset in the way in which you would enable rather than mandate um, yeah. and the way in which we would think about change on a large scale basis um it would be really i just i would love to get your thoughts on um a sense of personalization, which is in essence what we talked about in the response to the last question. It's like, how do you make it feel more about me? So I can go to yoga on a Thursday morning and I can work, you know, start at lunchtime and finish at midnight on a Monday and then on a Friday finish early so I can go to the pub with my mates early. And all of like the whole redesign of what we imagine work to be, we do have an opportunity to do that off the back of this, I think. Um, and the experience that we're going through now, like how, yeah. how do you, how do you think about like the reimagination of experience design in how a person would imagine an attached sentiment and feeling towards a brand inside an organization, given if you hold some of those things true or constant? Yeah. Well, again, disappointingly, I completely agree with everything you just said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and again, I think, um, I think it's one of those things that if you're you, you, you think this is kind of obvious and you're almost, um, 
sort of aware that if you wrote a LinkedIn post about it, then everyone would be like, oh, yeah, 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 we know this. But actually, I don't think it's obvious to many people. And I think, um, you know, words that you use, like I think it was microtransaction, um, you know, they're, they're, they're absolutely what this is about. Like, it's absolutely not top down. It's absolutely bottom up. Yeah. Um, it's all about the behavior that you tolerate more than it is about the behavior that you write on vinyl posters in the canteen. It's a relationship um, at its core for me. It's like, yeah. do I tolerate that from you or not? Do no, I want more exactly. of that or not? Exactly. Um, so I think if I was being kind, what I would say has happened is that we've gone from the sort of Victorian era where work was suffering, where, you know, if no one died in the office that day, then that meant that it'd been a pretty good day and, uh, you know, everyone would be happy. Yeah. Uh, and I think we've had the kind of, the sort of tech companies like the Facebooks and the Google have kind of gone for these um, outlandish sort of physical manifestations of culture, you know, so it's to have kind of workout bars next to the coder's desk and it's to have free smoothies and it's to have uh, pool tables and gyms and uh, yeah. cycling classes or whatever they do. Um, and I think uh, that means that some large companies, I'm talking mainly about large companies because it's harder for large companies. Um, I think that means the larger companies have sort of taken hold of that and they've got, they've got persuaded by, by demonstrations of culture. Um, so I will see, you know, I'm, I'm sort of odd in that I go to clients around the world, I'll see plenty of signs in um, lobbies saying, you know, we love diversity, like diversity is everything, come to the Martin Luther King, you know, barbecue on Tuesdays, or we yeah. are fun, you know, we are allowed to drink at our desks from 4.35 p.m. onwards on a Tuesday. Um, and it's kind of all understandable because someone needs to show that they're doing this stuff and someone needs to show that they're trying. But I just don't think that's how culture change happens. I think culture change happens because someone's manager, you know, on a sunny Thursday just goes, fuck it, let's go to the pub. Um, like who yeah. wants to come? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, completely. You know, like culture happens when someone just goes look, you know, there's this funny thing that I saw on the internet. Why don't we print it out? And then someone sticks it on a pillar and then someone comes along a little bit later on with another thing. Like it doesn't become this sort of wall of creativity. It just becomes this thing that accidentally happens. Yeah. Um, for some reason, I'm obsessed with pool tables in offices because I think the, the offices where pool tables really work are ones where the pool table was the result of a culture. And often people think that by buying a pool table and sticking it sort of near accounting, um, that they're creating a culture. And it, it just doesn't happen like that at all. Yeah. So yeah, everything has to be done with, with microtransactions. Everything has to be done by the bottom up. Everything is more about what is felt rather than what is made. Um, it's a hell of a lot about this is about recruitment. And again, this isn't to, to, to sort of make sure that you recruit people that are like you. Is to recruit people that are wildly different and threatening and hard to understand, but they somehow have a spirit in them and they somehow have a direction and a passion which is aligned to, to yours. And and um, and these things I think are often wrong by about three degrees, and that's enough for it to go completely wrong. Mm. Last question for you. Yeah. Um, your LinkedIn post read, don't expect it to happen. Wouldn't it be amazing if COVID-19 could be the death of management and the birth of leadership? Yeah. Um, how do you give anyone that's listening um, some guidance, some encouragement and some hope uh, to make that happen? Um, 
what I may think happens, I, I, again, I, I really do think that this thing is going to be um, a big health event and a big financial event, but I don't think this is going to be catastrophic. I don't think this is going to wipe all our memories clean and we come back to the office in two years and, you know, some people have left and gone to Peru and other people have changed career and you're faced with a radically different team. I think what's probably going to happen is we're going to come back and we're going to snap back to old things. But I would, I would love uh individuals to really think about um this sounds quite sort of grandiose but why are you going to work why why do you work for that company like what are you really trying to accomplish like are you trying to make your last uh, you know to to retire at at sort of 55 and live in a three-bedroom house in basingstoke are you doing it because you're trying to feel amazing about the positive difference you're making to the world and and really 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 think about what it is that you're trying to accomplish um and then just figure out what is the best way for you to make your own reality so especially if you're in a kind of um the archetypal middle management role like just think you know do i do i want to do my role as a manager or do i want to be a leader like you know what risks am i prepared to take like maybe i am prepared um, to step into a sort of unofficial role of ambassador and cheerleader and cultural node and person that makes a difference and form a tribe of people around me. Um, and maybe I need to say no to clients and maybe I need to say that I'm not going to turn up to that meeting and maybe I need to say that I'm just going to work, um, you know, I'm not doing any work on Fridays and work a bit on a Sunday afternoon instead. Like, if people sort of took control of their careers um, and if people kind of aligned around doing what they want to do the most and what the company wants to do the most, um, then I really think that there, this may be a chance for, for everyone to sort of recreate their own space a little bit. Um, I personally have this huge belief in um, intentions. Like if you are working from home because you're trying to get more stuff done, then do it. Like if you're trying to do this thing in two days later because you think it's going to be better, then do it two days later. Like if you're going to phone up the client and say no because you think it's in the best interest of the clients, then say no. I am very naive and I'm very um, optimistic. And I think that if we can work around things that we know to be well-intentioned decisions that work well for us and other people, I'd like to think that the world will celebrate those people and that those people will do really well. And so far, Touchwood has worked out quite well for me. That's great. I think I think the point around intentions is is um, one that we often forget, actually. And I feel like most yeah. people do turn up to work with the best of intentions. And you know, some days you might want to work from home because you've got to pick up a delivery or you want an easier day. But more yeah. often than not like people do have the best of intents they just want a bit more convenience or they want i think so i mean uh, um i basically trust every single person a hundred percent until they prove Prove to me otherwise and you know right now i work with a team of people that i employ on the side myself and there are about seven of those people and i just say you know this is like what i'd like um does this timeline sound good you know make it brilliant let me know if you need help from me yeah Um, and I've never once been let down remotely. In fact, people love freedom and people love um, showing that you, they can be trusted. And um, yeah, like, I don't think anyone's really born to be lazy or born to be subversive. I think people are born to be wonderful, trustworthy people. So. Agreed. Right, I'm going to close us out there and say thank you ever so much. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a whirlwind, but it's been great. And I've really enjoyed it. <laughs>